Well, six weeks ago, we started this journey, the journey through the ancient Christian season of Lent. And uh, as we've been winding our way towards this week, towards the week of Easter, uh, we've been engaging in, in different practices together as a community. And, and on Sundays, we've been looking at stories out of the, the life of Jesus. And when I introduced this six weeks ago, what I said was, uh, don't see this as an obligation, but instead as an invitation. An, an invitation uh, to draw closer and to pay attention to the life of Jesus as we move through this season of time. Uh, use this as an opportunity to draw closer to God through those experiences, hopefully. And, and I hope many of you have done that. But if you're here today and you're just joining us, it's not too late. It's not too late to engage in the season of Lent. In fact, you've come in at a really important time. Uh, today is, as Norton said, the beginning of Holy Week. This is the beginning of the pinnacle of Lent as we reflect and look back on the last week of Jesus's life. As we move towards the, through the events of, of the last week of his life towards uh, Good Friday and his crucifixion and then uh, the celebration of his resurrection on Easter Sunday. And uh, this year, as we've been going through the story of Jesus, we've been going through the book of Luke, uh, which is one of the four accounts of Jesus's life. And as we've done that, we've looked at encounters that Jesus has had with individuals along the way and tried to zero in on those. And as we've gone along, what, what we've seen is that this week was not outside of Jesus's plan. This week was not an aberration or a deviation, but no, it was actually a part of his plan all along. If you were here with us a few weeks ago, we looked at the story where Luke tells us that there came a point where Jesus determined that this week was part of his mission, that, that going to Jerusalem, that being arrested, tried, and executed was a part of the plan. And, and in that verse, it said that he set his face towards Jerusalem, that he resolutely set out, that he made that his, his destination. So as we've been following along through the story, we've been watching him wind his way through the towns and villages of ancient Palestine and teaching and preaching and healing. We've been watching all these things. But today is the day that he arrives at his destination. Palm Sunday is the day where we remember he, him arriving finally at Jerusalem the last time. And so I'm gonna jump right into the story. I wanna begin in that place today and then move us through uh, some of the events of this week as we prepare for what this week's gonna look like. So if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn with me to the book of Luke, chapter 19. We're gonna be in chapter 19 today. It's page 733 if you're using the Black Bibles at your seat uh, or you can flip in your phone or we'll put the verses on the screen as always. So again, we've been following along with Jesus as he's, been winding his way through the towns and villages, uh, teaching people, preaching to them, telling them the good news of the kingdom of God. And he's been winding his way in a very purposeful path and everything he's done has been very purposeful, but he's been heading towards a particular destination, the city of Jerusalem. Now Jerusalem, remember, was the center of Jewish cultural life at this time. It was the home of the temple. This was the center of Jewish religious life. This is where the sacrifices had to take place. Everything that they knew about having a covenant relationship with God required the temple. And so Jerusalem, the home of the temple, was central to their life. It was also the seat of of military and political power. Remember, Israel's not an independent state at this point. They are ruled by the, the Roman Empire. They are simply a province in the, in the, actually in the outlying areas, outlying territories 
of the Roman Empire. So this is the seat of political power and military power, home of the regional governor, Pontius Pilate. And so as we come to Jerusalem, we know that Jesus has been here many times before. We've, we've read through the stories. We know that in his life, he came to Jerusalem many times. He came with his parents when he was a child. He was dedicated there at the temple. He came for feasts and festivals. He was familiar with Jerusalem, but this time was different. Again, he's, he'd had this moment in his mind for a while. He had resolutely set out. He knew that this was his destination. He knew that the events of this week were part of the plan. And so finally, with all of that as background, we, we, we realize that today, we, as we step into this story, there's so much weight and so much momentum moving Jesus along to this place. And so we pick up the story today as Jesus is getting ready to, to enter into Jerusalem. And, and like everything that Jesus did, he did it intentionally. He, he did it with purpose and it, it was imbued with meaning. Everything that Jesus did, every parable that he taught, every, every person that he healed, every person that he interacted with, everything that he did was full of intentionality. And his entry into Jerusalem was no different. So the story begins as he sends his disciples ahead of him to a village just outside of Jerusalem. And he says, there's a young donkey that's tied up there. I want you to go get it and bring it back for me. And so they do that and they bring it back. Why is he doing this? What is the point of the donkey? Well, there's a reference in the Old Testament book of Zechariah about a king entering Jerusalem, not on a war horse, but on a donkey, coming meekly and humbly. It's a pronouncement of the coming of the Messiah. And so full of intention, Jesus tells his followers, go get this donkey. I'm not gonna walk in as I have every other time. I'm gonna ride in on this donkey. This is a proclamation of who Jesus is to the people of Jerusalem. We pick up the story in verse 36 where we read, as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles that they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will call out. So the scene is described as Jesus's triumphal entry because he enters in triumph. He conveys to the crowd the message that I am the king, the Messiah, the savior that you've been waiting for. And this Sunday is called Palm Sunday because not only did the, the, his followers lay their cloaks on the road, other accounts say that they were cutting branches off of the trees and laying them in front of him. They're welcoming a, as a king. They're affirming what he's saying to them. They're saying, yes, you are the king. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And the crowd is swelling with excitement and everyone is shouting and screaming and being swept along by this momentum. Back it up real quick. I'm not ready for that yet. Almost. <laughs> Almost. Almost. <clears throat> so, 
So there's all this excitement swelling and people are getting really fired up and they're being carried along by this. And the Pharisees, again, the religious leaders, they're not on board with this. They have not, been, they have not bought into this idea that Jesus is the king. And so they say, Jesus, tell your, tell your disciples to stop. Tell them to stop. And he says, no, I can't. Can't stop, won't stop. Not gonna stop. Not gonna tell them to stop. But truthfully, I don't think Jesus could have stopped them even if he'd wanted to. Why? Because the crowd had a life of its own. The crowd had a life of its own. There was so much excitement. At this point, the, the, the city of Jerusalem was as filled as it would ever be because this is the week of Passover. And so every observant Jew comes to Jerusalem for the Passover. So the crowd is full of people. It's already full of excitement. And here you've got all of these people entering into the city and suddenly here's Jesus. They've heard about him. They know about him. They know the buzz that, that, that's surrounding him. And suddenly there's a group of people lining the road, welcoming him as king. And suddenly there's momentum and excitement. And you know what that's like. It looks like that. <laughs> You've been at a sporting event before. You know what it's like. Anybody here ever rush the field or rush the court? All right, yeah, the few, the proud. We have done this, okay? So you know what it's like to just be like, I know this is wrong, but I'm gonna go. Like, like I might get arrested, but it's too exciting. Maybe, maybe for you, you know, for, for, for you, maybe some of you it's sports, maybe for others, it's concerts. Have you ever been to a concert where you were just swept up into the energy of the crowd and you just felt like you were a part of what was going on? This is a music festival in Europe and they get the whole crowd to dance together. It's amazing. If you've ever been, anybody ever crowd surfed before? Anybody? Yeah, a few hands. I like it, I like it. So have you ever been to a concert and you started dancing with like total strangers? I, I go to the, my wife and I go to the Botanic Gardens for concerts in the summer. It's hilarious. There's a little area always right in front of the, the stage where people can come and dance. And, you know, Botanic Gardens is a pretty laid back crowd, but they let you bring alcohol in. So, like, as the night goes on, there's more and more people dancing because they're just swept up into the energy. We know what it's like. And I have to imagine that, that some of that is what's going on this day as Jesus entered Jerusalem, people are just excited. They're excited because everyone's excited and they're swept along by this. Social psychologists have studied the, di the, psych the, the, the dynamics of crowd psychology and told us that, that this is a phenomenon, that as, as individuals, there are things that we would never do, but when we get in a crowd, we'll do them because there's a sense of anonymity that the crowd gives us, that it doesn't really matter that we're doing it. Hey, everybody's doing it. Like, we just go with the crowd. And there's a sense of contagion that comes with that as the excitement builds, we're swept along into it. And so in the middle of all the, the excitement that Jesus is experiencing, he's, he's riding along the road, being showered with praise and adoration. Everyone is excited about what's going on. And Jesus just lets it roll. He lets it go. He gives himself to the crowd and allows them to adore him, to welcome him as king. And I wanna sit in this moment for just a second because it's really interesting because when you, when you read through the stories of Jesus' life, what you see is that he has a really interesting relationship with crowds throughout his ministry, throughout all the time of, of his growing popularity and, and his, the, the growing awareness of what he's doing. There, there's this sense that Jesus is a little wary of crowds 
because he starts with a very small number of people. I mean, he starts in, in the remote part, the northern part of Israel, sort of the, the, the out in the sticks, and he begins with a small group of people, but word spreads pretty quickly about him, and lots of people come to hear him teach. People find out that he's healing people, he's casting out demons, and lots of more people start showing up, and there's huge crowds, but Jesus always seems sort of wary of the crowd. There, there are times when he'll slip away to be by himself or, or when he'll say something controversial or really challenging because he doesn't want people to follow him. He, he's, he's almost trying to, to cut the crowds down, but not this day. This day he embraces it. He gives himself to the crowd and he rides the wave of excitement and enthusiasm, enthusiasm which makes this next verse so interesting. In the midst of all that's going on, look how Jesus reacts. Verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. With the cheers of the crowd ringing in his ears, people shouting out, that he is the king, the Messiah, the long-awaited one. In the midst of the enthusiasm of this crowd, Jesus is crying. He's weeping. He's loudly wailing, looking out over the city that he loves. And he's saying, today could be different, but it's not going to be different. Things could be different. Things don't have to go the way that I know they're going to go. But you're blind. You don't know what you need. You don't know what would bring you peace because Jesus knew that this crowd, the commitment to him, their enthusiasm might be loud, but it wasn't deep. There was no conviction or commitment in it. He knew they were just excited about being excited. He cries because he knows that this won't last. If only you had known what would bring you peace, he says. But you don't. You're blind. Jesus knew how this week was going to go. And if you've been reading along with us, then you've already read some of the accounts of this week. If you haven't, I'm going to give you the, the Cliff Notes version. But I, I would love for all of us, if you, if you could, to, to this week take some time to read through these four chapters, the, the two chapters from last week and then the two chapters we have in our reading guide assigned for this week, chapters 20 through 23, 20, 21, 22, and 23. Reading through those will give you a sense of more of what's gonna happen. I'm gonna fast forward a little bit and tell you about what the week was like and then fast forward to an event that happens at the end. But I think it's a great Holy Week practice to read through the events of this week. A little bit at a time, all at once, every day, whatever you have time for, engage with it as you can. But I think it helps us engage with the life of Jesus and to draw closer to him as we read through this. So what happens through the week, where we go from here is he enters into the city and, and Jesus begins to stir up trouble, to be quite honest. He goes right to the temple and there's money changers there that, that are exchanging money and helping people to buy sacrifices. And he says, this is not a place for this. He turns over the table, he causes a big ruckus. We see him go through the week and he interacts uh, through teaching and through interacting with some of the religious leaders of the day. Again, remember, Jerusalem is the center of Jewish religious 
power. This is the place of the Jewish ruling council. This is the place where decisions get made. This is where the religious hierarchy exists. And he is poking them in the eye, left and right, challenging the way that they thought about God. This wasn't new. He'd been doing this, but now he's doing it in Jerusalem. And he's stirring up trouble. And so it's not hard to believe that things begin to change through the week and that sentiment about him within this core of religious rulers begins to change and sour. They begin to see him for the threat that he is to their power. And as the week goes along, this is the week of Passover remembrance. So Jesus tells his followers, he says, hey, I I really have been looking forward to this Passover with you. And I want to eat the Passover meal. I want to celebrate the Seder dinner with you. So somebody go make preparations and arrangements. And on Thursday night, he gathers together with his closest followers to share this meal with them. This has become known as the Last Supper. It would be the last time that Jesus would would eat together with all of his disciples in this way. This is the source of what we call communion or the Eucharist, where Jesus broke the bread and said, this is my body broken for you. And he poured the wine and said, this represents a new covenant, a new way of being in relationship with God through my blood. Again, the disciples still weren't picking up on what what was going on here, but Jesus was giving them clues that would make sense later. And so after dinner, he goes out, as was his tradition. Luke even tells us, as usual, Jesus goes to a garden, a garden called Gethsemane. And he goes there to pray, and some of his closest followers come with him. And while he's there, while he's praying, it's, it's at night, sometime late at night, another crowd comes. Another large group of people, not quite as happy as the first group. And they take him into custody to take him before the religious leaders. And his followers begin to protest and begin to put up a fight. Somebody even pulls out a sword and Jesus says, stop. He gives himself to this crowd as well. Late at night, he's taken to the, 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 the high priest's house, to Caiaphas' house, where the religious council is convening. And he's held there. One of his followers, we're told, follows, but not too close. Peter, the most brash of all the disciples, stays in the courtyard outside the house until someone recognizes him and says, hey, you were with Jesus too. And three times people recognize him and three times he denies, just as Jesus predicted that he would, meaning that the last of Jesus' followers completely abandoned him. Even the men and women who had been closest to him leave him alone in this moment. Sunrise comes and the council convenes and they try Jesus. And they really have only one question. Are you the Messiah? Jesus says, it is as you say. And they said, we don't need anything else. You have just committed blasphemy. You are guilty. The problem is they didn't have any power to do anything about that because you see the Romans were the ones who had all the power. Only they could execute someone. They wanted to have him put to death, but they had no power to do that. So they had a problem, a political problem. So they take him to Pilate and their tactic is this to say, this man claims to be king. There can only be one king, right? Caesar. So simply by saying that, he is committing sedition. He's trying to start an uprising, a rebellion. Pilate questions him and 
This doesn't seem like the kind of revolutionary that Pilate's used to. This is not a new thing. Lots of people have tried to lead rebellions against Rome. That's why Pilate was here. He's there to keep the peace, to keep order, to squelch rebellion. But this Jesus is different. He questions him and he asks him, are you the king of the Jews, as they say? And he says, yeah, it is as you say. But there is no desire to overthrow. There is no desire to lead a rebellion that Pilate detects in Jesus. And the religious leaders say, but he's been stirring up trouble. You don't know what he's been doing in the north in Galilee. Pilate says, oh, he's from Galilee. This isn't my problem. There's another regional director up there. Up there. We can pass the buck. Go see Herod. He's the governor of the north. So they take him to Herod. Herod had the same fascination. He, he brings him in. His soldiers taunt and mock Jesus as the king of the Jews. He asks him, do you think you're the king? It is as you say, Jesus says. But he can't goad him into performing any miracles. That's all really Herod wanted was for him to put on a show to see if the things he'd heard were true. But there's this simple man who refuses to defend himself, refuses to dance or put on a show for Herod. So he sends him back to Pilate and says, I have no cause to try this man. He's done nothing wrong. So he returns to Pilate and Pilate's got a decision to make. And this is when the most interesting and horrifying thing happens. Verse 13 of chapter 23. We're gonna fast forward, flip over a page or two. Chapter 23, verse 13. Pilate called together the chief priests the rulers, and the people, the crowd. And he said to them, you brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I've examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us, as you can see. He has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. Pilate has made a decision. This guy has done nothing wrong. He is not a threat to the Roman government. He is not a a threat to the peace. I'm gonna rough him up, put the fear of Rome in him, you know, just to make sure if, if if he has anything in his mind and I'm gonna let him go. But then something happens. Things take a turn when the crowd hears this news. Verse 18 But the whole crowd shouted, away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Luke's letting us know this is one of those real revolutionaries who tried to start an insurrection and was arrested. He killed people. And the crowd says, give us that guy. Let that guy go, not Jesus. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them a second time. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he spoke to them. Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. 
He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. Jesus goes to trial before both Roman governors, Pilate and Herod. They find no cause to arrest him. But when Pilate goes before the crowd, this group of people, when they find out Pilate's planning to release him, they're incensed. They're bloodthirsty and they call out. They're, they're frustrated. They're mad. They're disappointed. And the crowd demands Jesus' head. And what jumps out at me about this scene and this picture is just the juxtaposition of what happens in five days. I mean, on Sunday, Jesus came in and entered into this crowd of people who welcomed him and adored him and proclaimed him their king. And then by Friday, there's a different crowd, maybe some of the same people, calling for him to be executed because he hadn't lived up to the expectations that they had for what the king was supposed to do. It's hard to imagine that people could change so much in five days. It's hard to imagine that people would go from praise and adoration of someone to anger and disappointment and frustration that would lead to this kind of hatred. It's hard to imagine that people would change, but it's not hard to imagine that a crowd would change, right? Because we know this. Right? We've experienced this. We've experienced the positive of what it's like to be in a group of people when things are going great and everybody's excited. But have you ever been in a crowd where that turned? Where a fight broke out? Maybe at a protest? Have you ever been somewhere where people started acting towards others in a violent way? It's a scary place to be. It's not hard to imagine this because this still happens. These are pictures taken from the news. We see these every day, but we forget. Or we think about, that's those crazy people out there protesting. It's hard to imagine when we read the story of Jesus that people would call for the life of an innocent man until we step back and we begin to think about what happens in a crowd. What happens when people become angry begin to do things, they lose themselves, they lose that autonomy, they begin to go with what the crowd is doing, there's a contagion in the ideas. Suddenly, this guy isn't the person we thought he was gonna be. It's easy to see how that frustration and anger could be contagious. And the reason that this is so powerful for us to think about and to reflect on is not that this happened to Jesus, but that this happens. This is not something that was isolated or separate. When we look back through history, we try to segment these things and push them away to say, oh, the craziness of the Nazis or the genocide in Rwanda, those things were far away and those were evil people because we don't want to admit but this is something that lives inside of us. This is the curse of humanity. It's what the Bible calls sin, that in the right conditions, in the right circumstances, all of us, all of us are capable of unspeakable and unimaginable things. 
It's why we didn't need Jesus to be a great teacher. We didn't need Jesus to be a prophet. We didn't need him to be an example of, for our life. We need him to be our savior. We need him to fix this thing that's broken in us that draws out the worst in us, often when we're in a crowd. The story of the crowd that crucified Jesus is our story. And every time that happens, we crucify the Son of God all over again. We still need a Savior. Humanity still needs a Savior. It's why Jesus wept over the crowd, why he wept over the city as they welcomed him and adored him. And this week is the time, it's the opportunity, it's the one time a year. I know this is a bummer. This is like really depressing stuff and I hate talking about this stuff. This is not my personality. I don't dwell in the, the darkness, but, but this, is, this is important. This week is the one time where we, we step back and we remember this was the plan. This was the way it had to happen. We, we couldn't just try harder to be better people. We couldn't just follow a self-help plan to, to cure this thing that's in us. We needed a savior and the cross was a part of that plan. So as we move through this week towards Good Friday, I hope you'll come back on Friday because that's the day where we all sit and realize this happened and we were a part of it. This isn't about a crowd that happened 2,000 years ago. Jesus died to cure what's broken inside of all of us. And so as you go through this week, I hope you'll read back through the story of Jesus and that you'll find yourself in the story. Imagine what it might've been like to stand on the road that day with him and watch him come by. Imagine what it might've been like to be with his followers when he was arrested. Imagine what it might've been like if you'd chosen to follow Peter into that courtyard. Would you have had the courage to stay or would you have run away like Peter did? Imagine what it might have been like to stand in that courtyard with a sea of people shouting for Jesus to be crucified. Where would you find yourself in that crowd? The power of Holy Week is not just reading and remembering the story, but embracing that we are part of this story. It's understanding that we're all part of humanity. We're all part of the crowd, and on our own ways, we've all participated in crucifying the Son of God. Thankfully, the story does not end here. So we hope you'll come back on Friday and especially next Sunday on Easter. But this week, as we close, let me pray for us that we would all in our own way be able to engage in this story, maybe for a new way, maybe for the first time. Let's pray. God, as we enter into this story and begin to see that <clears throat> we're a part of it, there's a heaviness that comes from that in realizing that, that Jesus' sacrifice was for us, that we were a part of this. We were a part of what drove him to the cross and we are a part of receiving what he did for us there. And so this week, God, as we go out and as we follow along, engage in the story 
in our own way, whether it's just coming back on Friday or whether it's reading through the story again. God, I pray that you'd meet us there and that you would help us to remember that you're there with us. You never leave us or forsake us in the midst of this. And that we would remember the hope that we long for that comes on Easter. We pray all these things through the Son and by the Spirit. Amen.